Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to the gospel according to Luke in the New Testament. Uh, We are taking a short break from our series on Ezekiel for the next six weeks or so that we have in uh, remaining in this calendar year. We'll be looking at the opening two chapters of the gospel according to Luke, and we'll read the first 25 verses in Luke chapter 1 this morning. Uh, Luke's gospel is the longest book in the New Testament, and Luke also authored a second volume, companion volume to his gospel, the book of Acts. And Paul calls Luke the beloved doctor in Colossians 4.14. So we know that he was a physician by training. And as Paul also testifies in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Luke alone remained with the Apostle Paul during his last imprisonment. So although not an apostle himself, Luke accompanied the apostolic band on missionary journeys, at least from Acts chapter 16 on, and played a vital role not least in giving us two books of the New Testament. And we'll come to his writing uh, for the next several weeks or so. Uh, Let's pray before we take up our study and hear God's word this morning. Let's look to our God in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you as needy children, uh, confident in your abounding goodness and mercy that you would, as you have promised, deal bountifully with our souls, with the spiritual nourishment of your word. Uh, Lead us by it in the way everlasting. Uh, Lead us to that life that you have revealed to us in the gospel, uh, which is knowing you and the one whom you have sent, the Lord Jesus Christ. So grow us in our knowledge of you and in our enjoyment of you. Uh, We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 1, first 25 verses, this is God's word. In as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by law to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you shall have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. 
and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Thus far this reading in God's holy word. Luke wrote this gospel with a particular audience in mind. Luke identifies the recipient in verse 3 as one named Theophilus. Apparently, he was a person of some rank and prominence because he's called most excellent Theophilus, whose name Theophilus means beloved of God. And it is to him that the gospel is immediately addressed and dedicated in the preface section of this opening chapter with a personal challenge. Uh, with the explicit aim and design that Theophilus may come to have certainty concerning the things he had already been taught. And in one sense, that applies equally to each of you this morning. This gospel is also for you, most beloved of God. Uh, This is speaking to all the Theophiluses who are beloved of God in Christ Jesus, who are therefore in turn lovers of God, our Savior. This gospel exists so that you may attain greater assurance and conviction of faith about the things you already know and have believed concerning Jesus Christ and salvation in him. The Holy Spirit, in his goodness and love, has given this book to you so that the gospel truth may become more certain, may become more assimilated into your life to the point of changing you through and through. The book bears the unmistakable stamp of Luke's personality and training and gifting. You can kind of tell that in the style of this writing. You can tell that he's a medical doctor, for instance. He has a historian's mind. He's got eyes for details. He's thorough and orderly. And it's a thing of wonder to pause and think that God should use such a variety of different kinds of people in his church. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just to name four, in order to communicate comprehensively to the world regarding his son, his coming into the world, his deeds, his teaching, 
his death on the cross, his resurrection, that God uses the tax collector Matthew, who is sold out to the Roman government. He uses him to write the most Jewish account to bring people into an altogether different kingdom and to call people to an altogether different allegiance. And he uses the simple profundity of an unschooled fisherman in John in order to call the proud to childlike faith in Jesus Christ. He equally uses the orderly, meticulous writings of a well-trained, educated man, Luke, and the fast-paced narratives of Mark, which were written through the input of the Apostle Peter, whose naturally impulsive, impetuous personality is surely reflected in the style. That's what the kingdom of God is, actually. People wired so differently, redeemed and brought into the church and brought into the service of the Lord with a variety of gifts as members of the one body, just as many different body parts make up a human body. So the Bible says we need them all. So that together they may glorify and magnify the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Luke's gospel is a healthy reminder of that sheer diversity that exists in the church, even as different writing styles are given to provide a variety of spiritual diet for the people of God. Rejoice in your God who does this for you, believers, for his believer, uh, beloved children. Rejoice in your God who does this kind work for your benefit. Well, quickly, Luke himself says three things about this gospel account in the opening four verses. That first, this is a carefully researched account. He's followed closely, he says, what the apostles as eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have already compiled. He's carefully looked after and looked into them. And secondly, it's therefore historically accurate. Details not omitted, but verified. And throughout this account, the whole gospel of Luke Luke's interest in history will surface quite frequently as soon as in verse 5 in his identification of the period of the historical setting. And then thirdly, Luke also says this is purposefully structured and organized. It is an orderly account. Luke purposely put things together in a certain order in order to make clear to you what it is that the Holy Spirit of God wants you to know about the Savior who came to seek and to save that which is lost. And the story of the gospel uh, begins here, not with a genealogy as with Matthew, not in the wilderness with the ministry of John the Baptist as we see in Mark, not in eternity in the beginning was the word as we hear in the prologue to John's gospel. But if you look in verse 5, the story of the gospel opens in the days of Herod as king of Judea. The land of Judea was ruled by a pagan, cruel, tyrannical, wicked, evil king. This is the same Herod who would decree the murder of all the babies under the age of two around the time of the birth of Jesus. And from our very recent series on Ezekiel, the kind of historical political context should give you a sense of what this would have meant for God's people, that this is 600 years after Ezekiel's time. The 
deportation that led to the end of the Davidic royal line and a succession of kingdoms, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, now the Romans, and 600 years later, the Israelites still haven't got the king. There's no Messiah coming. And 400 years of abject silence from God since the closing of the Old Testament scriptures, the believer's mind would have always been befuddled with that question, what happened to the promise of the Messiah? And the gospel account uh, begins in the days of Herod. If you can put it in a relevant term, it can be equated to the darkest and most evil days that man can remember. That's what would have gone through the minds of the saints when they heard the name Herod. Now, you and I live in a generation, you hear so often around you, people saying, complaining about how bad things are. What is this world coming to? What's happening in our country? Maybe you yourself find yourself adding your voices to that grumbling chorus in despair. What is happening? Every time we collect a dollar, no telling how rich we can get whenever you hear things like that. But scripture helps us to get a grip and to gain perspective on reality in this world that we live in. Always remember the saints of the Lord, that God reigns on the throne, that he is a God who sits on the throne and laughs at human designs. What do you expect out of this present evil age? Uh, This is the world that crucified the Lord of glory. Any hope for the world, any sense of the presence of God, any possibility of salvation must come from outside of this world. And apart from God's common grace exercising the interest of redemption, things would be infinitely much worse. Yet our God is is a sovereign God, and right at the start of the gospel, we're given a reminder that the living God is not absent from the historical scene. He's a God who orders history. He works in the darkest of days in the most unexpected ways. He remembers his covenant He does the impossible. He sends his son. He raises the dead. So the gospel opens in the context of deep darkness and gloom, culturally, politically, societally, nationally. And the gospel never comes into an ideal setting. It never has. It never has come into an ideal setting, whether personally or nationally. And as the gospel opens, we are introduced to this at least middle-aged, if not quite elderly, yet godly couple. Zechariah and Elizabeth were given their names. Both are of the priestly line. And Luke says they were righteous. Just stop there and say wow to yourself. They are righteous people worshiping the Lord in this godless, secular, pagan, evil environment under the reign of Herod. God always has his people in the world. It's called a church, a people redeemed out of this world to be 
God's own possession. And verse 6 says, they were both righteous before God. Like all the other saints down through the ages, that means they had righteousness that is by faith. The righteousness that is by faith, which expressed itself in their walking in God's commandments, in their obedience, in their walking in the fear of the Lord. There are saints, there are believers, there are righteous, there are godly, yet there was a shadow cast over their home. Uh, they had no child. Elizabeth was barren and now old, past childbearing age, and there was a great shadow cast over their home for however many years of their married life together. The godly people who faced sorrows and difficulties, the mysteries of providence that have brought trials into their lives, and God does the same thing, doesn't he, in your life. You are righteous, you are confessing faith in Christ, you are walking faithfully with the Lord, and as the God who wisely orders and ordains all things, all the personal histories of all his children, many a sigh and many a tear would have been present in their lives over this particular sadness, as sometimes you yourself are not unacquainted with that kind of disappointment and sadness and trials and prayers gone unanswered for many years. Well, how do you respond to that kind of disappointment? Unfulfilled godly longings and sufferings and trials. When you are tempted to doubt the goodness of God, when you are filled with thoughts like, what have I done to receive this kind of maybe punishment or divine discipline? And throughout this gospel, you will be led to the one in whom you believe and faith in whom would enable you to say, Rather, the question, how can God be glorified through it as you patiently wait upon the Lord? So we are introduced to this couple, and the thing that Luke wants us to see happened at the temple when Zechariah's priestly division was on duty. A little bit of background there. There are 24 divisions in the priesthood at the time so each division of the priesthood would, by custom, serve at the temple in Jerusalem a week or two at a time on a rotating basis. And Zechariah, belonging to the line of Abijah, was selected. And Zechariah apparently had a once-in-a-lifetime appointment. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord all by himself into that holy place and burn incense to the Lord. This undoubtedly would have been the greatest moment, the high point of his priestly career. Because once chosen to enter the temple, a priest would then be ineligible to serve again. So at the height of his priestly career, something happened to Zechariah. As he entered the temple, he would have been struck by the temple furnishing. You know, the things that you read about in First Kings or Exodus in your yearly Bible reading plan. On his left was would have been the golden lampstand that flickered in the dark. On his right would have been the table of bread. And in front of him was the golden altar of incense 
placed up against that curtain that guarded the entrance to the most holy place. And it's there as he burned the incense, wafted to heaven from inside the temple, that simultaneously mingled with prayers of the multitude of worshipers from outside the temple. It's there in the temple that suddenly an angel of the Lord appears, an angel standing at the right side of the altar, and we are told that Zechariah was gripped with fear, is troubled, which is the typical response of all those who see angels in the scriptures, these heavenly creatures of glory who dwell and stand in the presence of God. Whenever a mere human comes face to face with an angel sent from above, their response is not, hey, how are you doing? Nice to see you. Their response is one of abject fear, prostration, and falling before them. But the angel immediately assures Zechariah and says, do not be afraid. Uh, This is Gabriel, the same angel who appeared to Daniel more than 550 years before. The same Gabriel who spoke to Daniel about the Messiah. When Daniel had a vision of the ram and the goat and the 70 weeks, the movement of kingdoms, the coming of the Messiah, putting an end to sin and everlasting righteousness, being ushered in, the very same angel Gabriel now appeared with good news for Zechariah. And he says to uh, Zechariah, verse 13, your prayer has been heard. Elizabeth will bear your son, and you shall call his name John, whose name means God shows grace. And when that son is born, many will rejoice at his birth, and this child, John, will be a child of destiny. This is not going to be an ordinary child because he is going to be consecrated to the Lord along the lines of a Nazareth vow. That's the business about having no strong drink and wine and so forth. The Nazareth vow in the Old Covenant. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from the mother's womb. And he will be great before the Lord. Now just pause and ask the question, what does greatness before the Lord look like? What would make John the Baptist great before the presence of the Lord? Remember later Jesus says, Concerning, Zechari- uh, concerning John the Baptist, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. But then Jesus goes on to say immediately, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What is the greatness in the kingdom of God, which is the free gift of grace? What is the gift given to you in the kingdom of Grace. What does that greatness in the kingdom look like? What is that greatness you have received as a free gift from the Lord because you believed? It's not greatness as the world counts, influence, power, because greatness in the kingdom of God is humility. By grace, you have been enabled to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. The Lord Jesus says, The greatest among you must be servants. And by grace, you have become servants. 
having been set free from sin, servants of others and servants of righteousness. And for John, he was given the privilege of declaring to people the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus says, you are greater, even the least among you, even the least most frail among you is greater than John the Baptist because you have the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have seen the substance, the Lamb of God slain and resurrected, and you have believed in him. By grace, you have been humbled initially in believing, and by grace, you are becoming more and more humbled. That's what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. And Zechariah is told that this child will be great before the Lord. Now, if you think of John's career, John would go on to lose his head, essentially by preaching against the unbiblical sexual ethics of King Herod's son, King Herod Antipas, and he's beheaded. And the angel Gabriel said, John will be great. And Lord, Lord Jesus says, you are greater than John because you have seen this one, the Lord Jesus, and believe in him and something of the spirit and the mind of Christ by grace has been given to you. But the angel continued to make this announcement as he prepares the way of the Lord and in the power and spirit of Elijah, his ministry will have a converting effect. Many of the children of Israel will turn to the Lord their God. He will turn the hearts of the Father to their children. He'll turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. He'll make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Of course, there's something unique about the ministry of John the Baptist here, but this is a description of what every gospel ministry does. It converts the children of Israel to the Lord their God. It turns the disobedient, rebellious, to true wisdom, the wisdom which is finds its beginning in the fear of the Lord. His ministry will have the effect of making ready for the Lord a people prepared. And do you realize in the gospel, whenever you come and sit under the ministry of the gospel, you are being prepared for the Lord as a people, as a bride of the Lamb. And the angel Gabriel assigns that task and calling to this son who is to be born. Now, no scripturally instructed priest would have missed a point because what Gabriel is doing here in verse 16 and verse 17 is essentially quoting verbatim from the last chapter of the Old Testament, from the very last two verses of the Old Testament scriptures, in fact, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, that by quoting these words, Gabriel is saying to Zechariah that this child is going to be the promised Elijah to come, the one sent on on ahead to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare for the Savior to come. And what Zechariah encountered at the temple was after years of waiting, that the Lord is answering prayers, that the couple will be with a child at the personal level, but much deeper than that, after centuries of apparent silence and inaction, God is on the move, bringing salvation to the nations in the coming of the Messiah and fulfilling his promise of blessing 
to the ends of the earth. This is an extraordinary announcement. Good news, pronounced prayer, specifically answered. This is an extraordinary announcement. But notice in passing how this extraordinary event at the temple actually took place in the line of duty. It took place in the ordinary course of going about one's priestly duty for Zechariah that was doing priestly tasks as he was called to do. It's in that context that God worked. God worked in the line of duty. Just remember that frequently mothers here, parents, church members, church officers, God works like that. Then this event not only happened in the line of duty, but secondly, it happened at the temple with a multitude of people praying outside at this appointed meeting place between God and his people. Prayers were heard and answered. The angel came to Zechariah with good news, with answer to prayer, with the revelation of his glory, with the announcement of salvation. And it happened at the temple. Well, in the new covenant, where is our temple. Where do we discover similar blessings? Where do we expect God to work in similar ways in the new covenant? Assuredly not somewhere in Jerusalem at that building because that's only a type and shadow of the real thing. Jesus Christ has come. He's the true temple. We draw near to him. And through Jesus, we offer our incense of prayers to God. But as we come to Christ, the Bible says, we as believers are as living stones joined together and rises into a spiritual house, into the temple of the Lord, holy unto him. In other words, for believers in the new covenant, the place where blessings will be poured out and where God will peculiarly attend to his people's cries with blessing. It's the place where believers gather in the name of Jesus. What do believers do when they gather? Not in solitude, but in multitudes, whether it be two or three or 20 or 30 or 200 or 300. Or they pray. They offer sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. This is the very thing that Malachi envisioned, that his name would be great among the nations, and from the rising of the sun to the setting of it, in every place, incense would be offered to his name. as a pure offering as people come to God through Jesus Christ. This is the thing that happens wherever God's people gather in the name of Jesus, that a multitude of God's people praying, seeking God's face. And that tells us that the church that has no formal meeting for some type of corporate prayer is dreadfully deficient. If your life is not attached to the prayer life of the church, there's something dreadfully deficient in your new covenant spirituality. It's as people devoted themselves to prayer that this answer to prayer and this blessing came for Zechariah and also as it does frequently for believers. It happened in the line of duty. It happened... At the temple. But then, thirdly, 
Notice how it is met with unbelief. Verse 18, Zechariah's response says, How shall I know this? I'm an old man. My wife is well advanced in years. What is the biggest spiritual problem that there is in this world? What is the biggest spiritual problem that there is in the church? It's the same problem that you and I face, and it's the problem of unbelief. I don't mean that we are unbelievers, but as believers, as righteous saints justified by grace, united to Christ, like Zechariah, our biggest spiritual problem always is going to be unbelief. Failure really to believe. Failure really to take God as word. Failure really to order your life according to it. We walk by faith and not by sight. And that faith, as our Westminster Confession of Faith wisely puts it in Confession chapter 14, is different in degrees. Weak or strong may often be and many ways assailed and weakened, but faith which nonetheless gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and the finisher of our faith. Here, glorious things were spoken. Zechariah, he has been assured of his prayer being heard. Answer was given scripturally with quotations from Malachi given to Zechariah, and his initial response is, How shall I know this? I look at myself and I'm old and my wife is past childbearing stage. How will this happen? And turning the question to you, do you really believe the things that you have believed to a point where you are ready to stake absolutely everything about you upon the spoken word. This is a kind of thing that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11, how through faith some saints conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Some were made strong out of weakness. Some became mighty in war. Some put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their debt by resurrection. But some also were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. And what was the secret? It's because they had faith. God promised great and extraordinary things to you who believe. And the question spiritually we always struggle with is, do we really believe? Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, that I pray that God would enlighten the eyes of your heart so that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, the Lord says. Toward us who believe according to the working of his great power 
and might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. There's a resurrection power that is made available to the saints who believe. Do you actually believe that? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the word of God is at work in you who believe. Later in Ephesians, Paul says, since God is at work according to the greatness of his power in us who believe, toward us who believe, then he ascribes glory to God. Oh, because he's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. All of these things are pointing us to the fact that saints fall short when we fail to believe. But then Jesus says, even if your faith is like a mustard seed, it'll happen. Mountains removed, even your sins forgiven, which are like mountains. So Zechariah was expressing unbelief. It was met with unbelief because ultimately he was concerned with himself. His thoughts were placed on his circumstances and himself. How shall I know this? How can I know this? How can I know with certainty? Well, that's the very reason this gospel was written by Luke, to dispel doubts, to ground you more firmly in the certainty of the things promised, because faith for you comes through the hearing of the word and faith always nourishes itself and grows itself stronger as it feeds upon God's word. So as a result, Zechariah is struck dumb. He'll be silent. He'll be unable to testify to the vision he has seen. The angel says, until the words are fulfilled in their time. So as he comes out, he's unable to function the priestly duty. People are wondering about him and he comes out, he's silent. He's unable to pronounce the benediction. He cannot open his mouth, so he kept making signs, kind of a comical attempts at playing charades with a heavenly vision, and people couldn't make anything of it. But they did realize that Zechariah must have seen a vision. This is what happens, actually, in your life. When you have seen something of the glory of God in the temple, Despite your lingering sin, your lingering unbelief, remaining weakness, all your bumbling efforts, people actually realize this about you, that that person has seen something wonderful, wonderful things concerning Jesus Christ. Like Isaiah, like Paul, like Zechariah here, you're never the same man because you have seen something of the glory of Christ and the coming of his salvation. And he said you this morning, that when people look at you, you're not the same person, even despite all the remaining weakness and your stumbling efforts. Pathetically trying to communicate, making bumbling efforts, but they all know that he must have seen a vision. So Zechariah is dumbed until the child will be born again, and so that when he opens his mouth again, as we'll see later in this chapter, it'll be filled with a new song of praise in the spirit. In the meantime, God is teaching him, teaching him to be silent and to know that he is God. 
So verse 24, after these days, um, Elizabeth conceives. And one obvious thing I want to point out to you is that this is not some kind of supernatural angelic conception. Angel came and said, you'll be with a child, but how does this pregnancy occur? In the course of the um, ordinary course of the marriage bed. God fulfills his promise through the means. God announces the promise, and he uses the means to fulfill them. What about for you in your life? Don't you have promises of God for you? That he is making you like the Lord Jesus Christ, his son. What are you doing in light of that promise? He uses the means of grace to produce Christ-likeness in you. God has said, you are going to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. How is that going to happen? Again, God has given you means of grace, and God will wisely order into your life even trials to shape and mold you, to discipline you. So Elizabeth is with a child and five months of silence. She has hidden herself. She's careful perhaps to risk no miscarriage maybe. And she has declared in verse 5, the Lord has thus done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. She's rejoicing. All these years of reproach finally taken away. The burden I had had to endure, all those insensitive remarks that people make about barrenness and so forth. You can imagine the reproach is gone. The old covenant physical sign of disfavor with God and even covenant curse, barren womb. God has given me a child. God has answered prayer. That was her personal joy. God has answered prayer. How do you apply this to your situation? Because these are issues actually some people also deal with. Whatever brings disappointments and kind of a stigma in your personal situation, maybe burdens you carry so many years and decades. Childlessness or maybe divorce in the past. Shame from the sins of youth or maybe singleness, prolonged unemployment, debilitating disability, or even mental decline. Things that are in the Old Covenant associated with covenant curses. Well, the Gospel declares that those things which are meant to give you pictures of spiritual reality in Jesus Christ have lost their sting who turns curse into blessing, so that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your life is hidden with God in Christ, so that all these trials that were associated with the old covenant curses and disfavor are no longer a sign of that, a sign of reproach. If you are in Jesus Christ, even though there are trials you live with, you can say confidently in Jesus Christ, He has taken my reproach. Away. And you know the reason for that, don't you? Because Jesus is the one actually took away all your sins and all your 
reproaches upon him and bore them away. And we see in a foreshadowing way, in the coming of this child, John, he will prepare the way for the one who will take away all the reproaches. He bore away all your reproachment, all your shame. Not a single ounce remains for you if you're in Jesus Christ so that you are this day securely hidden with Christ in your God. Your life has been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Even as you anticipate that day, as Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, that one day he will return and he will wipe um, away every tear from all faces. He will swallow up death forever and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth the Lord has spoken. Until the day of the new heavens and the new earth come, saints on earth live by faith with all manner of trials, and yet we live by faith, knowing that those things no longer do or should bring reproach upon you, unlike what other people around you may say. That's the kind of confidence you have, security you have. It shields you from any sense of insecurity or discontentment because you have come to know the one who indeed took upon him your reproach so that he has replaced them with bountiful blessings in part now and fully in the coming kingdom of God. Well, that's the opening of the gospel. And may we believe, may we become more certain, may we become more certain of the things we already have known and believed, may we grow in our living, conforming ourselves to that imperishable hope of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray together.